Hello, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. You can check out my site at myersdetox.com where we discuss there and on this podcast the concept of heavy metal toxicity, where these metals are found, how to detox them, detox supplements, protocols, everything related to the toxins found in our modern environment in the air, food, and water, and what to do about it and the health issues that they are causing. Today we have on the show Jacqueline Bowen. This is such a good show. We talk about does your protein powders have heavy metals and food toxicity and the future of food safety. We're going to be talking about a lot of different categories of food, the findings that uh, Jacqueline's association, the Clean Label Project, have found in baby foods and CBD, in pet foods and decaffeinated coffee, protein powders and other food product categories so that you can make more informed and safer food choices. Uh, Jacqueline and I talk about why foods are not labeled to be free of heavy metals uh, for the most part, um, why the next level and future of food safety is food toxicity, why cadmium is found in hemp protein powders and toxins found in the top selling brands of protein powders. It's kind of shocking. We'll also talk about toxic chemicals found in decaf coffee that millions of pregnant women are drinking and people with heart conditions are drinking. We'll talk about the horrifying toxins found in baby food and baby formula that manufacturers are aware of, yet still sell them to consumers and babies. We'll talk about the CBD Wild West and the toxins like cadmium and inconsistencies found in CBD products, not all of them, but some, and why a shocking number of CBD products contain THC, which is the the, the ingredient that you know causes you to have euphoria and feel high, um, that is not on the label. Some of these products have a lot of THC in them that you, you won't know, and she tests the top brands, and we talk about the top brands tested, so you can choose a safe product. And what to look for in those tests. Sometimes the tests that people have are deceiving on these company websites. We'll also talk about the sad state of food sold to pets that are contributing to the pet cancer epidemic and a lot of the health issues that our furry friends have. And we discuss the cleanest source of pet foods and the most toxic class of pet foods as well. Really, really interesting show. And we talk about what consumers should look for when they are evaluating foods and consumer products. This is such a good show. I'm so excited to, you know, to introduce you guys to Jack. Jacqueline Bowen. She's a food safety and quality systems engineer and executive director of the Clean Label Project, a national nonprofit and certification organization with the mission to bring truth and transparency to food and consumer product labeling. Through data, science, and benchmarking, Clean Label Project uses retail sampling and testing to benchmark product quality and purity of America's best-selling food and consumer products and award Clean Label Project's coveted evidence-based purity award. Before coming to Clean Label Project, Jacqueline held numerous technical standards development, food safety, quality, and executive roles within the World Health Organization Collaborating Center, NSF International. Her expertise is in organic, gluten-free, non-GMO labeling, food safety and label claims, substantiation and compliance. Bowen and Clean Label Project have appeared on NBC, ABC, Fox News, CNN, The Doctors, and 450 plus print and online media outlets, including USA Today and HuffPost. Bowen holds a Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Biology, a Master's of Science in Quality Engineering, and a Master of Public Health in Management and Public Policy. You can learn more about her work in heavy metal and chemical testing in many, many different food product categories at cleanlabelproject.org. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in the Clean Label Project and what makes Clean Label Project certification different from other certifications for heavy metals? 
Sure. So, so first, a little bit about me. So by training, I'm a food safety and quality systems engineer, which I always like to tell people makes me a professional buzzkill at dinner parties. Uh, <laughs> the way I, right? It's like somebody, if you need to kind of be talked out of eating or drinking anything, just give me a buzz. I will tell you those things. Um, and so what we do at Clean Label Project is we're a national nonprofit with the mission of bringing truth and transparency to consumer product labeling. We believe that sometimes what's not on a label is what matters most. I mean, let's be honest, like, let's go to a grocery store, show me one package that says this product is entirely meh. Frankly, it doesn't taste very good. It's overpriced. And listen, we had to make margins. So we used the cheaper packaging that was lined with BPA so we could get that shelf life extension. Yeah, we get it that it's kind of linked to endocrine disruption, but thank God we made our margins. The packaging doesn't say this stuff. And so for us at Clean Label Project and data and science, we trust. So when it comes to our certification program, the way the certification program works is that we actually go into the marketplace, we purchase products the exact same way a consumer would, and the only difference is we take them to an analytical chemistry lab for testing. What we do with our certification program is we make sure that what consumers have in their pantries, refrigerators, and medicine cabinets makes, you know, is, maintains the same great standard. Um, the way our program works is it's based on benchmark data. When I say benchmark data, it means we test entire industries worth. So if we're talking about things like protein powder, we tested 121 of the top selling protein powders. And what we're able to do is when you have all of those data points, you can confidently say, this is the mean and median one, two, three standard deviations, as well as the statistical outliers. For clean label project certification, you have to be in the top one third of your industry. In other words, make the honor roll. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that just sounds like so much fun. I would love to be involved in something like that because, you know, it, one thing that's always perplexed me and, and but not surprising is that there's no heavy metal labels or warnings on food. There is for supplements and that's great. Um, but <clears throat> part of my concern is even on supplements and I know it's this is meant to protect consumers, but even on supplements, a lot of products have a, a lead warning or a, a prop 65 warning that I feel like is more geared towards steering people away from natural solutions than it is to protect them. Because let's face it, almost all food has some small degree of lead in it. Uh, beans have lead in it. Natural products, natural foods grown in soil. The soil has lead contamination from, you know, gasoline emissions when we used to put lead in gasoline. Can you talk a little about that? Sure, absolutely. So the way I look at it as, is that, you know, consumers have a right to know what's in the food and consumer products that we purchase. I mean, it's one where we don't see things showing up on product packaging like E. coli free, salmonella free, listeria free. You know, it's because <laughs> we assume we assume safety. You know, and the FDA does a good job when it comes to things that I refer to as traditional food safety. Like I said, different microbiological and pathogen contaminants, things you hear about in, you know, salad mix recalls or burrito restaurants. But what's interesting is that what we see play out in the media related to stories like levels of heavy metals in America's best-selling prenatal vitamins, levels of glyphosate or Roundup in America's best-selling breakfast cereals, levels of arsenic in America's best-selling bottled waters. The kicker is that these products are largely compliant in the court of law, but in the court of public opinion, it's a different story. You know, what I see playing out is that we have a growing divide between the court of law and court of public opinion. Consumers are expecting better, and social media and trans consumer demand for transparency is only accelerating this process. The challenges that we see is that consumers expect more than what the current regulatory fabric in America is able to deliver on. So right now, you see where consumers are like, no, no, I, I get it. I don't want heavy metals or I don't want, you know, contaminants, but the federal food safety regulatory fabric in America has not yet delivered on that expectation. So yes, you currently, currently see levels of heavy metals in America's best-selling, you know, uh, labeled in, in, in dietary supplements because of Prop 65, but you largely do not see that. You're right, playing out on food. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, food is largely just left uh, untouched as far as, as heavy metals is concerned. I mean, I've heard of like some some canned foods having high levels of lead and there's a little bit of talk there, but 
not in the the remainder of the the large uh, you know thousands and thousands of products that are on consumer shelves are largely um, you know left out of that conversation. That's correct. And you had you had mentioned as well that whole thing about uh, you know remnants from things like leaded gasoline and and you know naturally occurring heavy metals and what things require you know labeling and stuff. And it's and it's interesting. I was literally just thinking about this other day uh, as I was walking through the. Uh, through the airport is it's like we we use these terms or we'll say things of like oh there's you know heavy metals are naturally occurring you know in the earth's you know it's naturally occurring in the earth's crust but you know let's be honest here that because of human causes things like mining fracking industrial agriculture these things end up in the air they end up in the water and they end up in the soil and they end up in food unless brands proactively choose to think about food safety differently. If we know that consumers are concerned about heavy metals, about pesticide residues, about plasticizers, it's a matter of brands proactively aligning with consumer expectation and formulating and sourcing ingredients accordingly. The thing that I always like to say as I was walking through the airport, it's one where you're seeing people because of the, you know, the whole coronavirus, we're taking necessary, necessary precautions, being much more diligent about washing our hands. You see people with face masks, well, coronavirus is naturally occurring, but we're doing our best to avoid it. Guess what? When it comes to things like heavy metals, pesticide residues, brands can proactively put checks and balances in place and to think about food safety differently and avoid these ingredients and these contaminants from showing up in the finished products. It's just a matter about putting precautions in place. Yeah, yeah, it is, uh, you know, sad that because of modern industry and uh, all these metals and chemicals are being released into our environment at unprecedented rates, and they are present in our food, in our air, and our water. And we have to be proactive about, you know, knowing where the highest levels are in foods and avoiding them or detoxing them from our body. But so first, let's talk about testing, because I love that organizations like yours are doing testing of our foods or consumers are aware of what they're buying and can vote with their dollars and compel companies to remove these uh, heavy metals and uh, chemicals from their food. So what does the Clean Label Project test for when they're testing categories of food products? Sure. No, that's a great question. So when it comes to testing, what we test for varies depending on the product. So for example, if we're talking about things like dietary supplements, we would test for heavy metals, pesticide residues, plasticizers, which would be things like BPA, BPS, and phthalates that have been linked to endocrine disruption and fertility. We also test for things like residual solvents, that sometimes these different active ingredients are dissolved within solvents, but you don't want the solvent present in the finished product. On the other side, sometimes we will test for things like um, if you're looking at uh, different types of potato chips or breads and snacks, um, one of the another contaminant we would test for within that category is called acrylamide. Acrylamide is a you may have heard of it. It's a bioaccumulative neurotoxin that's uh, developed through uh, a process of when you heat starches and sugars to a really high temperature, it forms this. Um, uh, it's formed by the Maillard reaction and forms like on on bread, when you see crust or on potato chips, you see the dark brown. Um, that is, it happens through the acrylamide formation. And it tastes great, but it's one where it's increasingly concerning in both the state of California, and especially in Europe, they already have some strict regulations when it comes to acrylamide. So for different types of fried foods, uh, obviously pull in acrylamide. For different types of dairy products, you're going to want to look like things for things like antibiotic residues or different types of hormones. Um, so it kind of varies depending on the category that we're looking at. One thing is absolutely true. We always use uh, ISO-accredited analytical chemistry laboratories. Uh, what ISO is, it's the International Standards Organization. There's a standard called 17025 that's focused on international best practice to ensure the accuracy and reproducibility of test results. This is kind of seen as the gold standard within analytical chemistry testing. Fantastic, fantastic. I love it. And so yeah, it's so sad that acrylamides, they're just so tasty. So sad that we need to <laughs> remove them from our diet. Those are naturally occurring too, though, right? Um, so, <laughs> so let's talk about uh, food toxicity and how this really is the future of food safety. It's not, I mean, of course, we don't want bacteria in our food and salmonella and things like that. There's E. coli outbreaks. But how is the, the future of food really about food toxicity? The way I like to think of it as, you know, why food toxicity is the next kind of frontier and the next focus of food safety is that 
you know, consumers are the new ultimate arbiters of trust and transparency. They're going to determine what exactly is fit for purpose when it comes to feeding themselves and their family. You know, it's interesting that it was it wasn't until the late 1980s that smoking was banned on airplanes. It wasn't until the 80s when there was, we saw the correlation between leaded gasoline and reduced IQ uh, in children that all of a sudden it was one where we made changes uh, to the use of you know the types of gasoline and use of catalytic converters. The the thing that's interesting is we see right now play out in mainstream you know media we see different academic and regulatory studies focused on that things like bpa bps phthalates are linked to endocrine disruption and infertility we know that heavy metals are linked to cancer but yet the food safety regulatory fabric in america has not yet caught up so it's almost one where what you see is that consumers are the ones that are willing and able to pull through industry reform. The speed in which we see innovation taking place is that regulatory, frankly, is going to end up having to play catch up. Consumer expectation is what's going to drive change within industry. And right now, we already know that consumers, as well as leading experts like American Academy of Pediatrics, are saying that things like lead are really, really bad. Um, you know, when it comes to children, we know that the World Health Organization says that the first thousand days of life are critically important for long-term health and wellness. Well, the thing is, when you look at, you know, America's best-selling infant formulas, prenatal vitamins and baby foods, lead is largely unregulated in the domestic foods yeah yeah it's crazy and then you also look at like manganese that's really high in soy infant formulas that can damage the brain because the the blood brain barrier doesn't form until six months of age then you can look exactly. at ars arsenic's really high in rice cereals that's fed to a lot of babies yeah. i mean it just and then you did testing on all the baby foods which i love and it was shocking the results i actually i've talked about that on facebook live i i didn't on the facebook live i didn't realize it was your organization that had done all this testing that was being reported on but it's just it's really frightening uh, the the levels of metals that are in baby foods that for major brands that are being fed to millions of children it's it's correct I mean and that's one of the you know for clean label project the areas that we like to focus is just because you have these vulnerable populations and it's one where if we know that what they are fed so early in in life is such a predictor of future you know their ability to thrive we should focus on it more not to mention when we have you know different you know leading pediatricians talking about how harmful lead is it's about time that's a matter of thinking of lead as part of the food safety process. It's not just, you know, one of the things I always like to use as an example is like, you know, when was the last time you heard someone say, oh my God, I should not have eaten that macaroni salad at yesterday afternoon's potluck. I think I woke up with cancer, says nobody ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's almost like, you know, we think about food safety through the lens of Am I getting an upset stomach? Do I have diarrhea or, varm or vomiting? But what we see that consumers are currently concerning themselves with is chronic disease, things like infertility and cancers that aren't going to have a chance to, they're not going to you know, produce themselves overnight. This is going to be 20 to 30 years of low-level exposure that causes this kind of harm within the body, and you won't know it until much longer farther down the road. So it's a matter of kind of thinking of food safety differently. And it's a matter of, you know, consumers telling industry that this is important. Industry can very quickly shift because obviously they want to meet consumer expectations and regulatory. It's just a matter of time before they catch up with that. I'm so happy that large companies like Kellogg's are going to be working towards removing glyphosate from cereals because there's been such an outcry from the public uh, about glyphosate in cereals. And it's shocking the levels of glyphosate, which is an herbicide in some of these cereals that are being fed to children every single morning, millions of children. Yes, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it's it's a real win for, frankly, for public health when you see brands proactively take making these types of commitments. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to glyphosate, you still have that, you know, glyphosate is technically legal, you know, that these levels are technically, from a federal regulatory perspective, considered okay. But we know that consumers are concerned about it. What I always like to tell brands and tell consumers is that, frankly, when it comes to federal law, Think of that as table stakes. That's like the minimum expectation. Brands that proactively align with what consumers want. And if what consumers, whether we know they're concerned about is glyphosate, 
well then give the people what they want. It's like, just remove it from your, from the, from the, you know, your ingredient supply, make sure that the way that your farmers are going about sourcing is that this is not one of the different types of pesticides that they use. This is just one where it's too much risk. And frankly, it's too much risk for these brands to even consider sourcing from farmers that are using this, you know, highly concerning pesticide. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why the organic segment or category of foods is the fastest growing segment in the grocery industry. And why a lot of larger companies are buying up these small organic foods companies. But what I think consumers don't realize is they're buying organic foods to be pesticide free, glyphosate free, but that doesn't mean heavy metal free. Uh, Can you talk a little about that? Yes, you're absolutely correct. So the thing that's important is that through testing of hundreds, even thousands of food and consumer products, uh, you know, across all different grocery store aisles, I can confidently say that the organic promise of less pesticides absolutely holds true. We consistently see that organic is far superior when it comes to pesticide residues um, compared to conventional products. But this whole issue of heavy metals in the food supply, this is a systemic food issue. It's an organic issue. It's a conventional food issue. It's a, you know, cosmetic and, uh, you know, dietary supplement issue. It's across all different categories that, you know, ultimately what gets measured gets done. And if the federal government as part of the food safety regulations are not holding brands accountable for things like heavy metals, brands aren't going to proactively care about it. And then what means, what it means is that the onus is on consumers to proactively tell brands, no, no, this is what I want. This is what's important for me and my family. And like you said, use your dollars to vote accordingly for the different food food movements that resonate for you and are important for you and your family. Yes, you have to vote with your dollars. Vote buying organic foods, brands that care about their about their their buyers over profits. Because the bottom line is, a lot of these companies can afford to do metals testing. They can afford to choose healthier packaging for their products. They can afford to do testing, and they just they don't do it. And uh, of course, they're they're corporations. They have shareholders. They have to have they have to maximize profits, but. You know, for me, it's just so upsetting when I see these companies making billions of dollars and and the, the, the little people, the millions of people in the U.S. that maybe can't afford healthy food, their children, their families are suffering from these chronic diseases that we see today, diabetes, heart disease, diabetes, uh, you know, being overweight, uh, high blood pressure, that all have heavy metals as underlying root causes. So they're the ones suffering. And so I th- just think it's really criminal for so many of these companies to profit at the expense of people's health. Yeah, and, and to put it kind of in perspective, when we talk about heavy metals testing, sometimes when people hear of like, oh, testing down to single digit parts per billion of heavy metals, you know, I always like to kind of put it in perspective of a, a heavy metal panel that's going to be your total arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury. It's about $150. So this is one where it's, we're talking about like, you know, this isn't something that's expensive. This is something that these multi-billion dollars companies can absolutely afford. It shouldn't take a little nonprofit to co- go out there and being like, here, folks, when you're talking about the best-selling prenatal vitamins or, you know, infant formulas in America, we shouldn't be the ones to have to, you know, raise the flag about this. This is one where brands can very easily go to an analytical chemistry lab and get a heavy metal panel done themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so and they might be doing it internally, but just not releasing that to the public. Exactly, um, exactly. So what should consumers be looking for when they're eval- evaluating foods in consumer products? Absolutely. So, you know, one thing that I'll always say, of course, is that, you know, Clean Label Project, we have a certification program out there uh, that we go out there, brands basically enlist us to go into the marketplace, purchase their products and continue to test them to make sure they maintain their high standards. Um, So obviously you can look for a Clean Label Project uh, in the supplement space. uh, We certify Smarty Pants as well as Enzymedica and a few different CBD companies, uh, Pachimama, as well as Real-Time Pain Relief and Precision Botanical. Uh, we work. We do this kind of work across a variety of other categories, including food, baby food, pet food, protein powders. Um, so obviously, look for Clean Label Project. The other thing that I always tell consumers to be is be a conscious consumer. That it's so exciting to be a consumer right now because we have things like social media. That if you have questions from brands, ask them, and better yet, ask them publicly because it's one where if you post it on Facebook or Twitter, they're going to be obligated to respond back to that publicly to everyone else that's paying attention. 
what a better way to be able to ask them, like, listen, I'm really concerned about what I just heard, uh, you know, about levels of lead in prenatal vitamins or levels of, you know, glyphosate and best-selling breakfast cereals. What are you guys doing? Do you, do you test for glyphosate? If so, down to what levels? Put these brands on the spot. It's such a great time to demand transparency as a consumer. And it's not just about brands. Challenge your retailers. Who's your local retailer that you love? Do you use Amazon.com? Are you using Amazon Fresh? Are you using a local co-op or, or a national retailer? Ask them. Ask them what they're doing to proactively screen these products, screen these brands before they put these products on grocery store shelves. Yes, that's fantastic. Yeah, because some of these companies are doing paying for Facebook ads and there's thousands of people commenting and reading these comments. So I think that's a great tip. And so, so you mentioned some of the categories that you've tested. And I love that you tested pet food because that is an area where, I mean, just all the garbage that humans don't want to consume goes into these pet foods. And I think some of the, the practices and some of these foods uh, are really just horrifying what's being fed to pets. And then it's a big surprise. Uh, all, these, all these pets are getting cancers and health issues and seizures and are overweight. What's going on there? Yes, absolutely. It's such a great question. I know for me, I have a rescue basset hound at home. And so this is obviously a topic that's so near and dear to my heart. So when it comes to pet food, the way we, you know, the way I think about it, and the reason why we investigated uh, that particular category was because, I mean, think about it, 95% studies show that 95% of pet owners consider their pets part of the family. I know that I do. So it's like, you know, when you see different kinds of claims out there about feed them like family, and, you know, you just see the whole humanization of the pet food category, you can't help but to wonder what's actually in this stuff. Um, so yes, we did an investigation into the top selling uh, pet foods in America. We do certify a handful of different pet foods now, Bixby Pet, Buckley, as well as I and Love and You and Canasaurus. Uh, the thing that's interesting when it comes to pet foods is a few things. I, you know, Whenever I run into people at the airport and we talk about what I do, they always ask, like, what should I feed my pet? What should I feed my pet? And I, I put this into perspective, you know, when it comes to us and you figure out, you know, what you had for breakfast today, what you had for lunch and dinner, we eat a very varied diet. When it comes to our pets, they're eating the same thing at every meal, every day of their life for the most part, right? And so it's a matter of whatever we give them will affect in the long term because they're having those same inputs, those same heavy metals, those same pesticides at every single meal, every single day. One thing I will tell you holds true. Uh, when we tested pet food. By far, the cleanest pet food source is turkey when it comes to the protein source. By far, the most contaminated protein source when it comes to pet food is fish. Why? Thing is, it's like when it comes to the marketing and what you see on product packaging, so showing up on grocery store shelves, you frequently see, you know, cows bounding through beautiful fields. You see these beautiful <laughs> fillets of salmon. Let's be honest here, folks. Is it these beautiful fillets of salmon that we see at the grocery store? Are those are the sh same ones that are showing up on grocery store shelves, shelf stable, being sold for $20 at the grocery store? No. What, should, what, what actually shows up in many pet foods, it's called the rack. The rack uh, includes the bones, the skin, the fat, and all these different tissues that would not show that we would not have and we are not using human food. And guess where heavy metals bioaccumulate? In the skin, in the fat, in the tissue, and in the bones. So it's all of these highly concentrated heavy metals and all of those tissues that ultimately end up in the pet food. And frankly, we see that in the test results. It's so disgusting. It's so sad what's fed to dogs. And I, for when I had my dogs, my little Jezebel and Wizard, they passed away last year, mm. unfortunately. But when I had a rule, I would not feed them anything that I would not eat myself. And so I cooked all over their own food and mostly turkey also. But yeah, some of these foods is just, ugh, just, it's like, it's really gross. And so let's talk, let's talk about protein powder. This yes. is uh, billions of dollars are spent on protein powder. And some of these things are, again, uh, really something I wouldn't even feed to my dog. Uh, but people are taking these things, thinking that they're being healthy. What's the deal with toxins in protein powder? Sure. So the whole rationale behind protein powder when we ran that study, it was it was interesting because it was after the new year. Everyone has New Year's resolutions, whether it's slim down or bulk up. And so for us, it was a matter of what's actually in the stuff that so many people are putting in their morning smoothies. Um, so we actually use the Amazon.com bestsellers list and we purchased the 121 best-selling protein powders. So what was I think a few things were really interesting that I found from that study. Um, the first thing that I found that was most interesting interesting 
was the fact that 55% of the best-selling protein powders had BPA contamination. So let's talk about that for a second. So we're talking about BPA. BPA stands for biphenol A. Biphenol A was largely removed from baby foods, infant formula, sippy cups, because BPA has been linked to endocrine disruption and infertility because it actually mimics uh, estrogen in your system. So because of this, you see you know, entire categories, industries that have exited from using any packaging that contains BPA. But the thing is, BPA wasn't just in packaging because it happened to be there. It fulfilled a very important purpose. BPA in lining actually extends the shelf life. So it's able to sit on grocery store shelves for a longer period of time before breaking down. What we saw within protein powder was that 55% of the best-selling protein powders had that BPA migration. In other words, the packaging was likely used a BPA liner. What happened is it starts to break down and then starts to seep into the protein powder. In the case of you think about protein powder users, these are people who are really focused on their health. They're trying to eat better. They're trying to do right. They're using protein powder and drinking morning smoothies. I'm going to guess that most of these people who are drinking protein powders are not expecting that they're going to get an end endocrine disruptor in their morning smoothies. So that would be the first thing that I found most, most interesting. The second thing that I found that was interesting is by far the cleanest protein sources when it comes to the flavors was vanilla. It was interesting because you look at it, so many people drink either vanilla or chocolate. What's fascinating is that Cadmium, which is a heavy metal, you know, which doesn't get enough credit, you know, in terms of credit by being bad, because you always talk about lead, is that cadmium is also a really bad and very potent heavy metal. Cadmium has a tendency to show up in chocolate. The chocolate, the plant just happens to suck up uh, high levels of, of cadmium from the soil. In fact, there was a really great investigation that was done by an amazing organization called As You Sow that looked at the whole kind of confectionery industry industry several years ago and looked at the levels of cadmium and chocolate. And it was a rampant issue. So what you see is that you know, the largely kind of the candy space and the chocolate space has cleaned up their cadmium levels. But what you still see are these high levels of cadmium cropping up in some of these under other industries, protein powder being one of them. The third thing that I found within the protein powder industry that was really interesting was the source of those proteins. By far, the cleanest protein source was a whey-based protein. The most contaminated was plant. And I know that's really kind of upsetting, especially to all the vegetarians like myself out there, that you want to find a clean plant-based protein source. What we did see is that pea-based protein powders happen to be the cleanest within plants. But let's talk about what I mean why, at least my supposition about why whey-based proteins happen to be the cleanest. You know, fortunately and unfortunately, you know, we have things like our liver and kidneys, which their whole function is to remove these toxins. Well, when you're using a whey-based protein, the cow is having this, a lot of these toxins removed as well. It's going through this filtration process. When you talk about plant-based protein sources, those plants have no choice but to suck up whatever happens to be in the soil. And just like you mentioned, because of things that we, from a societal perspective, because we have accepted things like mining, fracking, industrial agriculture, whatever is in that soil is gonna end up in the plant without any other means of filtration or without any screening, those heavy metals will ultimately end up in the protein powder. Yeah, and then you're going to be the filter, essentially. That's exactly <laughs> correct. Yeah, exactly and, correct. and uh, I, I just thought occurred to me, and hemp plants are very good at absorbing cadmium from the soil. So I imagine, I, I haven't looked at the results yet, I want to, um, but I imagine that hemp protein could potentially be high in cadmium. But uh, not only that, but plant proteins don't absorb that well, even though there's amino acids on the label, they actually have a, a pretty poor absorption rate. So it's always better to go with a whey protein or an, an animal protein based protein powder, in my opinion. Yes. And we can absolutely, uh, we can have so many conversations about CBD products as a whole, but you're absolutely correct. Hemp is actually considered a bio uh, remediator, which means that if there is a lot of contamination in the soil, uh, different industries will actually plant hemp plants to be able to suck that bad stuff up. So if you think of it, it's like, because the plant is just inherently really good at sucking it up, to your point, you can only assume that these hemp plants are obviously going to have higher levels of these heavy metals. Yeah. And I just bought some CBD oil and it was a company I was, tr I was trying to look for it a second ago. And it's Green Valley or Green Acres or something like that. I don't think it's the name, but they do pesticide testing. They test for 130 different contaminants for their CBD. I thought that I was really impressed by that. And, um, and, but like you said, CBD could, is a 
largely unregulated industry. And I think there's a lot of issues with labeling, with uh, contaminants. What's going on with CBD? Because there's so many products on the market. There's CBD face oils and uh, tinctures and pills, and it's in a lot of different consumer products. It's in honey. What's going on with CBD? Yes, such a great question, and I'm glad that you asked. So uh, Clean Label Project actually did an investigation into the true contents of America's best-selling CBD products. Uh, we actually tested 202 of the top-selling CBD products. I was fortunate to be able to provide public testimony at the FDA hearing back in May of 2019 about Clean Label Project's findings. Uh, I would say there's three major takeaways uh, that I had from that investigation. So first, before I jump into those, you know, the whole impetus for us looking at that category to your point was the fact that you see this like media, you know, kind of like this significant growth of the category, not to mention their premium price. These things don't come cheap, right? You're talking about isolates that hover around $60 for a vial. Um, And so for us, it was a matter of, you know, you see this growth of the industry. It's highly unregulated. It's premium priced. Obviously, it's perfect fodder that if somebody's going to go and take advantage of the industry, take advantage of these consumers that are, again, trying to find a, you know, an alternative means for things like anxiety relief or pain relief, you know, they're just trying to try- find other options other than pharmaceutical drugs, of course. Um, so when we tested these products, three major things came through. The first major thing uh, that I found especially concerning was the levels of THC. So there's a big difference between you have CBD and then you have THC, which is the active ingredient in, you know, in in marijuana that gets you high. CBD does not get you high. But what's interesting is that you see a lot of these THC-free claims. But what you also see hitting mainstream media is so many consumers that are testing positive for at drug screens for THC. How can this be possible? Well, what I can tell you is by testing those top-selling CBD products in America, 45% of them had at least trace levels of THC. What does this mean? Well, you know, there's different people that are reaching for CBD for different purposes. And obviously, one of the things that people aren't looking for is they're not looking to fail drug screens, as well as have any of those other effects that go along with THC. One of the things that was especially concerning is that a handful of these products actually exceeded the levels of THC that are permitted within marijuana. So let me rephrase that. You have (laughs) recreational marijuana laws And those are very, very tight, very stringent. But because CBD does not have strict regulation yet, you actually see some CBD products that have more THC than is allowed in recreational marijuana. Oh, wow. So in these cases, when you see consumers that are testing positive in drug screens, frankly, I look at it as like, I'm not surprised. Yeah, maybe that's why they're so popular. Exactly. That's a good point, too. (laughs) My gosh. The second thing that I found that was probably the one that I found most frustrating, as especially as Clean Label Project is a consumer advocacy organization, is one where we tested the true contents of CBD products. So in other words, people are buying CBD because they expect that they're going to be buying CBD, right? Uh, you know, what was interesting here is that we found that 70% of the top selling CBD products its actual potency was off by at least 10%. So let me reframe that. So what that means is if the product claimed to have 100 milligrams of CBD, it means that 70% of the time, the actual CBD content was 110 or more or 90 and below. More importantly and more concerning was that 7% of the top selling CBD products didn't have a lick of CBD in it at all. And so what this means is this could be either blatant economic adulteration in other words, complete fraud on consumers, or this could mean that a QA or QC process has, is not rigorous enough that that product, that CBD is not kept suspended within the solution and therefore could adhere to the sides of the container, or it was not mixed enough, it was not a homogenized uh, sample that when they were actually putting it into the different vials, that they had inconsistent levels of CBD. The other thing that I found that was very concerning was that on the other, on the other end, you have a handful of products that we actually had showed seven times the level of CBD that it declared on the label. Think of it this way. You may have a headache, want to take some ibuprofen. You may take a pill. It's like, listen, it may have 200 milligrams, like it says in the package, or it could have 1,400. It makes a big difference. And it especially makes it different and difficult because you have so many consumers that are trying CBD for the first time. They don't know the dose that's the right fit for them. So they got to try and kind of, you know, titrate up or titrate down, depending if it's having the effects. And so the thing is, it's like for the industry, 
It's one where getting it right, getting the potency right and consistent is good to ensure the long-term buy-in of consumers. They want to make sure that it works and they want to make sure that it works and has the same effect every single time. Yeah, it really is the Wild West in in the CBD and the hemp and like what's hemp compared to CBD and there's full spectrum CBD that's supposed to have THC. And I I have a couple of podcasts on this, but I'm going to do another one that's really a deep dive in all these differences and dosage and what to do and what to expect and not not to expect. But I bought some because I have back pain, you know, regularly. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to buy some to, to help with that. But the, the I, I looked up the, the company, it was Green Compass is okay. the, the product. They test for 130 different contaminants. I'm not affiliated with them. I don't sell them. I'm yeah. not, I'm not an ML, I don't do MLMs. But, um, but yeah, so I just wanted to mention that. Well, one, th- one thing I would say that I always kind of caution, well, I'll kind of give you t- two points on, on that front. Well, one thing that I love about the CBD industry is how much they have embraced transparency. You frequently see different things like QR codes that you can use your phone, go back to the website, see their test results. It allows you to kind of pop the hood and kick the tires, so to speak, um, which I love. The thing that I would say where some brands in the industry fall short is that, you know, I'm used to reading analytical chemistry test reports, statistics, levels of detection, levels of quantification. What I see in some test reports is they'll have a whole list of all the different contaminants that they test for, but then next to it, it'll say these words, LOD or LOQ. And that means level of detection and level of quantification. The thing is, in today's modern day analytical chemistry, there is no reason why a brand should not be able to test down to parts per billion. Parts per billion. What you frequently see is that brands will only test down to parts per million. And when you test down to a part per million, what this means is that these levels of heavy metals, in some cases, for example, lead in drinking water, the maximum you can have in drinking water is 15 parts per billion. So in some cases, you would see non-detects being reported down these on some of these test reports because they have artificially elevated LODs and LOQs. What happens when you see all those non-detects? If you're not using state-of-the-art science, it gives brands as well as consumers a false sense of comfort and security. So what you want to do in those cases, if you see that type of thing, grill that brand harder. Tell them that, frankly, you can do better. State-of-the-art analytical chemistry can confidently give results down to single-digit parts per billion, and they should embrace that best practice. Fantastic. That's so good to know because I I know there's a lot of people spending a lot of money on CBD, so you you have to be a savvy consumer with this. And so let's talk about baby food. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, Can you tell us about your experience with testing all the number one selling brands of baby food and what you found? Yeah. So, I mean, think about it. You know, like I mentioned before, the World Health Organization talks about how the first thousand days of life are critically important. Not to mention it's one when you think about things like heavy metals and plasticizers. When it comes to babies, during those first kind of critical few years, it's when brain development, immune system development uh, is first established. So the thing that was interesting is when we look at things like baby food, it's interesting because, you know, we definitely saw that certified organic rang true when it comes to having less pesticides. We still have the presence of some heavy metals, but what's interesting is when Clean Label Project, when we go about doing our studies, it's interesting because um, we use benchmark testing. So we'll use the, for example, the case of infant formula, which which is one that's near and dear to my heart. We actually published a peer-reviewed study on our findings on infant formula as well as baby food. In the case of infant formula, we tested 91 infant formulas. Uh, and obviously we tested them for the whole heavy metals, plasticizers, residual solvent, antibiotic residues, all of that kind of stuff. And the one that I always like to use as an example is actually lead. Uh, So when it comes to lead, we already talked about how, you know, lead is dangerous. uh, But what's more interesting is that you have the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the FDA, the CDC, the EPA, uh, all saying that there's no safe level of lead. In fact, when it comes to children, any lead exposure contribute to an increase in hyperactivity and a decrease in IQ. So when we tested infant formula, I mean, think about it. This is the, you know, most vulnerable period of development. It's the exclusive form of nourishment for so many children. And when it comes to infant formula, you have the formula and then you have the water. So it's the cumulative effect of both. And obviously we know that there's been different heavy metal in water issues in the U.S. So we tested the heavy metals for infant formula. One of the things that helped restore my faith in humanity is that the mean and median for lead was non-detect down to four parts per billion, which is great. The thing that was most concerning, we actually found 
two baby food or two infant formulas that exceeded 30 parts per billion of lead. But let me put that number into perspective for you. The level of lead that is EPA considers it's a level of concern in drinking water is five parts per billion. The level of lead that is the maximum allowed uh, under the EPA before the you know feds take action is 15 parts per billion. The levels of lead that was observed during the Flint, Michigan drinking water crisis was 27 parts per billion. Here you have you know, two infant formulas, best-selling infant formulas in America that exceed the levels of lead that was found, that was found in Flint, Michigan. The thing that was most concerning, most frustrating, is that Clean Label Project was able to work to get those products recalled in the state of California under Prop 65. The travesty lies in the fact that those products are legally for sale in the other 49 states today. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's just uh, insanity to me because these companies, uh, I, they have to know that there's lead in their products and they're still they're still selling them in the other states. Well, the thing that uh, is also so frustrating to me when it comes to things like when you have benchmark testing, you know, the way that I look at it is with benchmark testing that's so, you know, interesting. So maybe I'll talk about that for a minute. When you think of benchmarking, think of it as, you know, if you take your son or daughter, you know, to the pediatrician for their one-year checkup and they're like, we're going to get the weight, we're going to get the height, we're going to get their head circumference, make sure everything's on track. Well, let's say they came back and be like, okay, we did the, uh, you know, height and weight and uh, the height is uh, 18 inches great. Well, is that good? Is that bad? Uh, It's just 18. You know, it's kind of, it makes you, it's much more impactful when you put it into context. Well, you know, when it comes to the head circumference of a 12 month old female and it's, you know, and her head circumference is, you know, 17 inches, she is completely average. She's on track with consistent with what CDC sees in average babies her age, or it could be one where her height comes back. It's like, looks like you've got a basketball player in the making. All of that context helps you put into perspective how a product te- how a product looks. So the thing is when it comes to things like lead or heavy metals or just benchmark testing in general, what it tells you is that okay, 50% of the best-selling baby foods in America were able to hit, you know, non-detect down to 4 parts per billion. You're way over here above 30. Like you had to almost work really hard to find a supply chain that was that contaminated because the majority of the industry has been able to do this. And the thing is, I always like to tell brands is that, you know, as a society, we have accepted mining, fracking, industrial agriculture that contribute to this. But the thing is, is that through benchmark testing, it allows you to say, you know, here's what the actual supply chain, the global supply chain has been able to yield. Here's what is technically feasible. So when you see that these certain brands are statistical outliers, it means that, no, no, they can absolutely, and based on data, do better than they are. Yeah, they're just buying like the absolute cheapest ingredients to make the biggest profit margins. Yeah, that's correct. And so what are some other food categories that you tested at the, the Clean Label Project? Yes. And so um, one of the other ones most recently that was really excited, just reported on this one last week, is we actually tested uh, decaffeinated coffee. And so I'll talk about that. So decaffeinated coffee, there's been studies done on who drinks decaffeinated coffee. Majority of the time, people who drink decaffeinated coffee are people are pregnant women or people with heart disease. And just last year, in the fall of last year, the EPA banned a chemical called methylene chloride from paint strippers. So it's the active ingredient with the paint strippers. It was banned because it was linked to different types of asphyxia, different types of brain disorders and things like that. It was just too high risk of a chemical. The kicker is, is that this particular chemical, methylene chloride, is currently still allowed by the FDA to be used in the decaffeination process of coffee. So we went out there and be like, okay, so the active ingredient in paint stripper is no longer allowed to be used in paint stripper, but you can use it to make coffee that sensitive populations are going to drink. So what we did is we went out, we used the Amazon.com bestsellers list to identify the 25 top selling uh, decaffeinated coffees. And it was crazy. Like we found obviously a lot of non-detects, but we actually found a lot of detection of this chemical showing up in in decaffeinated coffees. So for us, it's one where, you know, what I can tell you is that certified organic, none of the certified organic products that we tested had this chemical. Another uh, process called uh, water processing uh, also did not have this particular chemical. Um, You can obviously check out on our website, cleanlabelproject.org, look under category summaries under decaf coffee. You can read more about it there. Parent magazine covered it as well. Um, Basically, the thing is here is like, listen, especially when you're a pregnant woman, you have heart disease, you're trying to do better by your baby. 
people with heart disease are trying to do better by their health. The caffeine isn't good. And so they reach for, reach for decaf coffee as an alternative. The thing is that FDA hasn't reevaluated the use of methylene chloride in coffee for 35 years. And knowing that there's other ways to decaffeinate coffee, brands can frankly do better. So consumers, make sure to check out the list. Make sure that you, uh, for brands that you that may be your favorites that are using it, reach out to those brands, tell them to do better, or switch to brands that have already made the jump using other methods in order to decaffeinate without the active ingredient paint stripper of all things. Oh my God, it's just crazy. You have to do the water method of decaffeination in your coffee. Yeah, and one thing I've always been curious about is levels of cat in coffee because coffee mm. is another one of those plants or trees mm. that absorb cadmium from the soil and that's one of the things that gives it a little kick it's not just the caffeine it's the cadmium oh, interesting a little stimulating I didn't know that. i'm gonna have to check that one out yeah i've always i've searched on the internet for information there's not that much info on it but i've always wondered about the different brands and the, the levels of cadmium of course that's determined by the levels of cadmium in the soils but i think that would be really interesting as well so what are some future projects that you have on the roster uh, for testing different food categories, product categories for testing at Clean Label Project? Yes. So some, some fun ones that we have coming up, definitely looking at things more in the supplement space, college as well as things that are like household cleaners, uh, little kid prenatal, uh, little kid vitamins, things like that will be fun, as well as getting a refresh on a couple of our categories around things like pet food and baby food and things like that. Fantastic. That'll be great because uh, the collagen supplements, I mean, those all... a huge range, right? Yeah, those can be a really horrifying category, I'm sure. Some of the test results will, will show because a lot of these collagen products are, you know, made from, uh, you know, CAFO cows and the glyphosate will accumulate in the, the gelatin in the bones and all these things that are cooked down to extract the collagen. So I, I presume there'll be high glyphosate and pesticide residues and hormones and things like that in a lot of the major brands. Definitely, we'll keep you, keep you posted for sure, Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us where we can learn more about the work at Clean Label Project and future testing on different food categories. Yes, check us out at cleanlabelproject.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, we're just a little nonprofit, but our whole mission is to uh, change the definition of food and consumer product safety in America. So help us join that revolution. Yeah, a little nonprofit, but making a huge, huge impact. And I love that you're doing this because I'm like, why isn't anyone testing for heavy metals and certifying them? I just didn't understand. And it's, I found you, I got so excited. Yeah, no, for sure. And let's make sure, let's stay in contact because um, we work with a lot of really great NGOs that are kind of trying to change that definition of food safety. And I love working with um, other like-minded kind of pioneers in the space for sure. Thank Fantastic. you for what you do. Well, Jacqueline, thanks for coming on the show. And everyone, thank you so much for tuning into the Meyer Detox podcast, where every week we touch on different topics related to heavy metal and chemical toxicity, detoxification protocols and supplements and natural health, uh, alternative health, etc. so that you can live your best life and get your life back with detox. So thanks for tuning in. I'm Wendy Myers. You can go to my website, myersdetox.com, where we have hundreds of podcasts and hundreds of free articles to help you live your best life. Thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you next week.